The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They very, very much deny being like a neo-Nazi party, but then like every so often there'll be some controversy and like someone will have found to have like expressed like uh, neo-Nazi sympathies or like just like deeply nationalistic and like racist perspectives and like private texts or things like that. Um, and so like, it's hard to say exactly, but it also doesn't matter because like this party that is like harboring Nazis is like catching like a lot of steam. And so like the story that I wanted to do from that, because this is something that is like known and is covered is like, what does that mean for people who are not just like, you know, white Germans who are like maybe affected by like the sort of like broader democratic implications of this, but who are like the, um, like minorities who are asylum seekers who are like directly affected, who are like the objects of these people's like hatred, like who these people like want to like exterminate or who they want to make miserable. I'm Tyler McBrien, managing editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, May 10th, 2023. Since 2012, Germany has accepted more refugees than any other country in Europe aside from Turkey. The German government has dispersed asylum seekers and other immigrants throughout the country, a policy often celebrated by refugee activists. But as reporter Ali Breland recently wrote in The New Republic, these seemingly well-intentioned policies have created dangerous situations where people of color are forced to reside in regions that may be hostile to their presence, and where they face greater threats from neo-Nazis and fascists. I sat down with Ali, a reporter at Mother Jones covering internet disinformation, technology, race, and politics, to discuss his article and reporting trip to Germany. We discussed the roots of the current neo-Nazi resurgence there, the dark side of Germany's lauded refugee resettlement program, and why the country might be a warning sign for the rest of Europe. We also discuss parallels between the far-right movements in Germany and the United States. It's the Lawford Podcast, May 10th. Ali Breland on Germany's neo-Nazi resurgence. So, Ali, you mostly cover domestic issues. I think it might be fair to say. I think we could describe your beat as at the nexus maybe of the American far right, internet misinformation, disinformation, and the like. So my first question I want to ask is, why did you go to Germany? And what did you find there? The, there's like, I guess like the practical reason I went to Germany is because there's like the Arthur F. Burns Fellowship uh, by the International Center for Journalism. And they fund journalists to like go and American journalists to go spend time in Germany and German journalists to spend time in American newsrooms in the United States. And like one thing I was interested in is someone who covers like the far right kind of and like these sort of, I guess, like political currents was like the German far right. Uh, I guess like for obvious reasons, like Nazism and neo-Nazism is sort of like this like ideological lodestar for like 
national socialists in the United States. Like it is like a sort of like, uh, I guess like, you know, the original model maybe is like not exactly like what they use, but it is like, it holds this like thing that's important. So I was like curious to understand like what neo-Nazism is right now, but not just neo-Nazism, but like what it was doing, I guess, to the specifically the people of color and like asylum seekers in Germany. This might be a story that has like been explored in German media, but I like kind of was having trouble finding like a lot of in-depth stories about it from English sources, even though like the sort of resurgence of neo-Nazism since um, the nineties and especially since like 2015 is something that had been like well sort of covered territory. I was kind of noticing like as I was like doing my research before I was going to Germany that like there weren't stories on specific experiences of like what people were dealing with. Like the only ones I really found were sort of like accidental bits of coverage. Like there was this time story that was like kind of like exploring what it means to be German to different kinds of people because like Germany, I guess by American standards has like a, a really weird conception of nationality. Like I am like half black and half Iranian. My mom is like an immigrant, but like people like for the most part, aside from like, you know, just like weird racists, like don't question that I'm American. But um, in Germany, like you can be there for generations, but if you're of like Turkish descent or something like that, like it, it is different. And so like in the story, I kind of just mentioned the weird situations that people were getting into as like an aside who like had connections to Eastern Germany, like people would like a white woman would like bring her like Hispanic boyfriend or husband to like her home in East Germany. And he'd just be dealing with all sorts of like bizarre racism. And like that felt not like understood to me by like Americans, even though like Germany is like one of the most like important countries in the world in terms of like, I guess like political power and economic power. And so then from there, I just like started reporting and that's like how I got into that story. Yeah. And, and before we jump into that story, uh, one thing I liked that your reporting did was at least issue a corrective or highlight an underreported aspect, at least for English speaking people. And that's, that's the racial component. Uh, but before we get into the story that you tell, can you give this sort of mainstream account of German history in the 20th and into the 21st century that you break down? Uh, and, and how is that, I think, not quite right, which you highlight well in your piece? Yeah, like, I, I guess like, so kind of as we understand it, as like, we get further and further from like World War II, like, I don't know there is like a sort of like weird i guess like gap and like we kind of like don't think about neo-nazism in the american imagination um at least like from the like millennial perspective like maybe i don't know people who are older have like a better sense of it um who like lived through the 90s more acutely uh, but like we don't i don't know i don't i don't think we really think about the resurgence until like kind of like more recently and like it, it feels like this sort of, sort of abstracted thing but in actuality there's like this actually got cut from the piece. I guess this is like a separate piece that I'll hopefully do soon. But like this, this writer, Martin A. Lee tracks how like neo-Nazism is, this sounds intuitive, but there's like a straight line between Nazism and neo-Nazism. It was like, they were concurrent, like they happened in the same moments. And like his specific sort of moment that he thinks was its inception was like the, uh, I think it was like the July 20th assassination attempt on Hitler's life. Because even though like the sort of motivations for why other Nazis tried to kill Hitler was like sort of suspect, like there's arguments that it was because actually he was like not good enough at like achieving Nazi aims. And like these were people, many of them were like directly involved in like uh, the Holocaust, like in concentration camp planning. So like they ostensibly were like not like noble people. Alan Dulles, like, he used this as justification for, like, giving them a pass during the denazification process, giving certain Nazi, like, higher-ups a pass during the denazification process so that he could try to, like, rope them into, like, different, like, anti-communist work that he was doing. And some of these people that got passes ended up, like, 
going about their lives after they worked at the CIA and like founding neo-Nazi organizations that provide like the founding framework for neo-Nazi organizations today. Even though there was this like kind of straight line, there's like arguably a lull until the 90s when like East and West Germany are like unified again. Um, and that sort of like tension because of like the economic disparity between the two countries, like sort of brings these like latent, like, I guess like Nazi forces that are kind of like brewing in the East more to the forefront, just to keep it brief. It's like much more nuanced than that, but, um, it kind of like hits his taste, his point. And then like the far right really catches another moment of resurgence in the 2015, 2016 Syrian refugee crisis, the far right kind of like is able to usurp a lot of like Nazi energy. And so like the German, like I think the specific neo-Nazi party, which is like sort of like vaguely ascendant prior to that sort of like dissipates. And part of the reason it dissipates is because the German far right party, the AFD, which is like not neo-Nazi usurps it and like becomes like a place for neo-Nazis to like join the ranks alongside more like normie pilled right-wing people who maybe have like nationalistic tendencies, but are not like pro Hitler per se. And I guess like that takes us kind of like the current moment of, I guess, like where we are with like the far right in Germany. And it also kind of like mirrors like very vaguely like the global far right rise and resurgence too. Yeah. So now that you've given the listeners a pretty good sense of some of the roots of the current uh, neo-Nazi resurgence and in sort of the incompleteness of the denazification process, and I'm sure there's a very long ungainly German noun for for that, um, (laughs) the sort of economic disparity that was brewing. Fast forwarding to today, what is the scale of the neo-Nazi movement in Germany? How do we know? And then as we transition into some of your reporting, who's on the receiving end of this? The the scale is like kind of weird. I guess like there are like numbers on like sorts of like uh, hate crimes and like there are numbers on like the sort of like, uh, I guess like movements of like extremism. And there's like sort of like these like qualitative examples that we can look to. Like the New York Times did this really good podcast called Day X which tracked this like pretty terrifying story of like uh, far right, like neo-Nazi infiltration into the police forces of Germany. I think it was like a specific narrative. And then there's like also like reporting on like problems that they've had within their own issues with that in the military. But like, it, I, like I said, it's kind of hard to parse out in the, the specific, like it's a specific electoral representation because the Nazi party itself is like kind of been in decline, but like the AFD functions as this kind of weird proxy where like the AFD's ascendance shows that there is like a far right ascendance. And like in many of the Eastern states of Germany, it is like the second, maybe in some cases like the top party, but like certainly like consistently like the second party that uh, I guess like is in power. And so like that becomes like a sort of useful proxy because it does have like neo-Nazis within its ranks. Like every, they, they very, very much deny being like a neo-Nazi party, but then like every so often there'll be some controversy and like someone will have found to have like expressed like uh, neo-Nazi sympathies or like just like deeply nationalistic and like racist perspectives and like private texts or things like that. Um, and so like, it's hard to, to say exactly, but it also doesn't matter because like this party that is like harboring Nazis is like catching like a lot of steam. And so, like, the story that I wanted to do from that, because this is something that is, like, known and is covered, is, like, what does that mean for people who are not just, like, you know, white Germans who are, like, maybe affected by, like, the sort of, like, broader democratic implications of this, but who are, like, the, um, 
like minorities who are asylum seekers who are like directly affected, who are like the objects of these people's like hatred, like who these people like want to like exterminate or who they want to make miserable. And so I, I just started like reaching out to different people and like trying to like understand, I guess, like different people who had been affected by this. And I found like weird things um, like Berlin is seen as this like super cosmopolitan city. It's like supposed to be, you know, like in a good way, like one of the weirdest places in the world. And like, in its sort of most multicultural neighborhood, Neukölln, which like, if you're not familiar, is like comparable to an American neighborhood like Bushwick, which is known for like having artists or like Echo Park in LA or Hackneywick in London. They had dealt with like a spate of neo-Nazi attacks, including some that had, or one that had targeted uh, this uh, German who's of Turkish descent, uh, Farah Kocek, who is a politician and an anti-fascist um, in Berlin. And from there too, I tried to report and I went to the Eastern part of the country, which like the East has, there is like a problem with like, I guess like the far right, like across the entire country, but it's much more pronounced in the East. It's like significantly, um, especially in like this state called Saxony. And so I, uh, with an NGO worker, Dave Schmidtka, he, who does like refugee work, we went and, uh, to meet with some women who were like living in, um, they call it a camp, but it's like refugee dorm housing. And we spoke with them uh, just on like what they were dealing with. And like, it's my understanding that like conditions for refugees across the country are like not great. And that's like sort of like a bipartisan thing that happens, but it, as best as I could tell, it seems a little bit worse in the East. And it seems like they're this sort of like far right, I guess, like tendency is also affecting like the actual people that live there um, or is affecting the conditions of like how refugees are treated. So there's these people stuck in like all sorts of weird situations in terms of like being in like asylum seeking limbo where they were like stuck without like a clear answer for years. There is like the conditions that they lived in were also like objectively terrible. Like we had to cut some of the worst details just for spacing so that it could fit in the physical magazine. But like uh, in my reporting, both in like what I directly saw and then like in qualitative research and other studies, like there was like all sorts of information and it was told to me and that I read about like bathrooms becoming just like these disease vectors. Uh, the women there sent me pictures uh, of just like, you know, pretty terrible, gross looking bathrooms, which are supposed to be cleaned regularly. And it's like, not that these people like are you know, particularly dirty or anything like that. It's just like, there's a dozen people sharing like a single toilet. There's only so much you can do about that. Psychologically, it seemed to be like they were put in a very difficult situation like they were like very sad in front of me but they also talked about how everyone else they knew was dealing with some sort of like mental problem psychologists that had also studied this noted that like they saw like higher incidences of like mental health issues in these sorts of camps yeah and so it as you would expect i guess the rise of the far right is like producing like pretty bad situations for people of color across the country which i guess like makes sense but i was curious to like see that directly and report on it yeah, I think from perhaps uh, an American perspective or a casual observer of Germany, it's seen as a sort of shining beacon in Europe for asylum seekers, partially for good reason. I think some some well-intentioned policies, and certainly they've accepted asylum seekers on a scale much larger than the United States, which is a larger country. Uh, but but the story you describe is something quite different, I think, which is important, especially given your your firsthand reporting. I want to get into some of the geographic distributions here. Can you give the listeners a sense of this German government program to distribute asylum seekers by geography and then what the implications of that policy has had uh, in terms of changing demographics and local population reactions to that? 
Yeah. So like, I think in the United States, we have something similar. Like there are just like random areas across the country where like there are different, sometimes seemingly like random minority ethnic populations from across the world that will like show up like uh, famously like Middle Eastern people being in like Michigan in DC, there's, there's a strong like Ethiopian community. And like some of these are like uh, voluntary migrations, but some of them are also the result of like the United States. I think like, I don't know, distributing people to different places. Um, in Germany, they have like a similar situation where they try to distribute uh, refugees like across the country so that they don't like, I guess like, I don't know, th- th- this sounds terrible and uh, you could probably argue against it, but like so that they don't like clump up and like have, I guess like their own, I don't know. I guess it's like an assimilation thing, I would assume is like my rough understanding of it. And so that like also no specific state or that um, no specific city takes on like a larger share of and like has to expend more resources and that it's more evenly distributed, which like, I guess like you could argue sounds fine in practicality, but like the, the problem is like when you have like a large portion of the country uh, that has like a kind of very different outlook than another portion of the country on asylum seekers, you end up with like bizarre like treatment or like just worse treatment in certain areas and so like that's like kind of what i saw was like these people in the east being treated more like very like unfairly or very like poorly sort of as like a direct reaction to the like rising like level of like racism and like anti-migrant anti-immigrant sentiment in the east it became like a sort of like weird indirect tool for them to kind of like deal with their like racial animus and it's very odd because, like, the East is going through, like, and has gone through a period of deindustrialization. It's, like, economy has, like, suffered and it is, like, economically weaker than Germany's West. But, like, at the same time, like, compared to, like, the United States, like, their minority population is, like, and their immigrant population is so much lower, especially in the East. The East actually has, like, a smaller immigrant population than the West. And so it is, like, a weird projection of them to, like deal with these insecurities. It's not unprecedented though, but it is like a weird sort of nonsensical like issue that they're frustrated that these migrants are ostensibly like taking their jobs and straining their resources when in actuality, even within their own country, they make up like a smaller amount of the population than in other parts of the country. Yeah. And the story you describe also, it sounds like asylum seekers are not only facing threats uh, from, you know, far right activists uh you know in terms of a very antagonistic relationship but also from these uh state and local governments um you describe some tribulations from saxony's government uh as more like a sadist fantasy vision of a kafka-esque bureaucracy than rational immigration policy so can you talk about some of those bureaucratic nightmare situations that asylum seekers find themselves in i was especially interested in the status of doldung or tolerated you know, keeping yeah. people in sort a sort of permanent state of limbo. Yeah. To zoom out for two seconds, like that is like, good that you brought that up. I guess it's like inter- like useful to think of like the violence and like mistreatment that um, refugees face and people, f- refugees and asylum seekers in Germany face. Uh, and it's like twofold. Like one, there is like the threat of violence from like actual Nazis or like people with like far right sentiments and like attacks do happen. There have been like violent marches like they're like targeted attacks that are like less like the result of like a a far-right march getting out of hand but like more the result of like precise attacks but then there's also this like sort of softer but persistent level of like state bureaucratic violence which like comes in the form of like i guess it's like leaving like these camps and these refugee homes to just like languish but then there's also 
this sort of like weird bureaucratic process where like uh, oftentimes I think it's my understanding in the East that like people were sometimes kept in limbo longer. So like I talked to these women who had been stuck in these, in these refugee homes for years at a time without like a clear, I guess like answer on their status or a way for them to get into, I guess a way for them to resolve their immigration situation. And it was like, they couldn't do anything. Like they would often find jobs because of like the specific travel restrictions they had to deal with. Like they wouldn't be allowed to travel like 45 minutes or an hour for a job, which is normal because like these towns are often in the countryside and there's like not a lot of economic opportunity necessarily within this direct city that they're in. So for them, like I I spoke with multiple women who like wanted to get jobs so that they could like pay and move out and like pay their own rent. They were very eager to, not to succumb to like the sort of like, I guess like productive, like immigrant sort of like, um, like stereotype and like desire, but like they very much like wanted to do, I guess like what, like if you're a certain kind of person you want to see like immigrants do. And like, they were not allowed to do that. They were stuck in like this weird bureaucratic limbo. They had these things called uh, doldungs, which were like basically put them in this like even further state of limbo, which like restricts their travel. And it's like a document that has like a literal red line on it, which like, I guess like, I don't know. As an American, I thought that that was like very funny, but I maybe there's not like a history of like redlining being like an on the nose thing in Germany. There's also a, a dark humor in that it sounds literally like doldrums, and like there's stuff yes. in the doldrums. Yeah, yeah, they they truly are, and like they I don't know they want a way out, and like oftentimes like they've figured out avenues too, but then the state just like denies them the ability to do that because of like their adherence to bureaucracy but then also their adherence to like sort of just like doing what they can to like sort of not help these people sometimes too like on a more individualized level there's a bureaucracy that the workers and the the bureaucrats have to follow but like they also sort of like they control like what they tell people so like dave schmitka was like telling me stories about people he would talk to getting like misinformation um that sometimes seemed intentional where like uh immigrants who might be eligible for like asylum status or like potentially eligible down the line were like discouraged from doing this by bureaucrats who had like no like real authority to do this. It was just like something they kind of like took upon themselves, which is something he said like was not like is like likely to happen in the West. Yeah. There's just like a lot of <laughs> not great things happening like all the way through, but it was like really also inspiring to talk to these people who were like just dealing with just like abjectly like shit conditions and they were like still persisting throughout them. And like they would, I don't know, like multiple women cried in front of me, but then also they were like, I don't have a choice. Like, this is like simply what, what I must do to like, you know, provide for my kids and like make their lives better. So I'm, I'm going to keep going and I'm still going to have hope. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's a, a couple of terms that you mentioned in your piece that I want to make sure we talk about, two of which are no-go zones and fear zones. Can you describe what those terms mean? Uh, perhaps describe some of the surprising etymology. I think even people, as you pointed out, who know think they know what these terms mean, the, the meaning has perhaps shifted or, or evolved. So what do those mean? And, and then how does this interact with the story you're telling? Yeah, another like sort of early thing that like brought me to the story was like kind of just like trying to like look into like the German far right. And like I was like trying to like look for like sort of existing materials on like what there was on the far right, like affecting minority populations. Um, and I came across this paper, I want to say it was like from 2009 by this European professor who looked into the term no-go zones. And at first I thought I was like going to be looking at this like sort of right-wing thing. Like uh, I think there was a period I want to say around like 2015 where in Western right-wing media, there was this like very large moral panic over these no-go zones, which were like mostly in Europe. There was some claims that they're in Michigan too, where like Sharia law was like controlling everything and it was like unsafe to go in, which is I mean, laughable for like a number of reasons, but then also like extremely laughable that the idea that like there's European neighborhoods that are like neighborhoods in like Western Europe that are not safe to go in. I don't know if you've been to like Sweden, but it's just like, I can't imagine there being any situations there that are like where you're you're walking into a neighborhood where you have to worry about anything at all. Um, and in Germany, like I, you know, I was in Berlin for two months, and like certainly there was like at no point which I like felt unsafe. But what the the paper actually found was that there was this sort of like intentional effort on the right to create no go zones that were the exact opposite. That uh, areas there were areas they were trying to set up that were like people of color and, and immigrants would like feel unsafe going to the actual like existence of them is like kind of complicated, which the paper gets into. It talks about how like the government didn't exactly recognize that there were no go zones because the government obviously doesn't want to do that. But they like did acknowledge at one point that there were like these sort of fear zones where immigrants like justifiably and people of color justifiably didn't feel great entering because there had been a history of violence. Um, and like the police in those areas were like not <laughs> not like necessarily reliable and could not be like trusted to like keep an eye out or like uh, adjudicate these or prevent these kinds of like attacks from happening. When I was like in Germany, I was like trying to ask different people about them and like no one ever said that they like didn't exist, but they kind of almost didn't want to acknowledge that they could exist because they would always say like, if we acknowledge that, then we're like sort of psychologically like seeding this to the neo-Nazis. We're saying like they have the capacity and power to do this, which like, they don't, and we don't want them to. But then at the same time, like I talked to Farat and he, he's like a sort of unique case because he's like, not just a person of color, but he's like a person of color of note who has been a target. So like, he felt like just kind of going anywhere in rural Germany was like potentially concerning for him. Like he was concerned about like taking the train uh, from Berlin to Dresden, which is like three hours, not necessarily because he's super worried about what happens in Dresden, but because of like along the way, he's like worried about the stops and just like things like that. And so, like, that was also, like, curious to me. I didn't ever go to any actual, like, no-go zones that had, like, a direct Nazi presence. But um, 
I did want to go into Saxony to kind of like be closer to them, which is like what I did when I went to that refugee camp in, in the town of Hoyas Verda, which like itself, I guess like is not necessarily like it hasn't made news recently for being like a hub of Nazi activity. But in 1991, it was like this famous site of this uh, riot that went like wrong where the far right attacked the refugee home that was there. Um, and like migrants had to like be bussed out in the middle of the night and it was this thing and it was, it was, yeah, it was like a big tragedy at the time. But yeah, the, the term is complicated, but like it is, it's like a concerning thing that like, I guess like does exist and it's, I don't know, it, it's like constantly, I don't know, like in flux, but yeah, it's not, it's not good. You've painted a picture of a significant or at least alarming resurgence of neo-Nazism in the country. What is the German government doing, if anything, to combat this? We mentioned the AFD, which is uh, growing in power, but but still not, I would say, in power. Uh, so, what is the what are the ruling parties actually doing to to address this? Because, as you mentioned, it's 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 not only uh, it, it's both a, um, a threat to asylum seekers and and refugees and immigrants, especially of color, but also to democratic institutions in Germany. I mean, it's it's kind of a nightmare for anyone to deal with and like for, for like there's a lot of people who are like very interested in stopping it like a lot of people have like made the argument which like kind of does seem right in some ways that like the even like the like more centrist parts of like the left government were like sort of like unwilling to like acknowledge the reality of these things a few years ago but like even as they have like i don't know there's like only so much you can do when you have this like sort of entrenched presence i think that um at one point they found like a military unit that was just like so badly compromised that they had to disband it outright. They do show up in the police and that people like Farad and others believe that there should be like more onerous, I guess like restrictions and like monitoring of the police to like try to like weed out these kinds of issues. But like, I don't know, like if you think about it kind of more in the context of the United States and like think about like the right, like far right sympathies among like people in the military or police officers, like if, someone who's like in power in like your unit or like on your police force, you know, maybe doesn't agree with you necessarily, but like thinks you're an all right guy. And like, it's maybe sympathetic to like your rough politics. It becomes like very hard to like actually like deal with this and like actually, I don't know, like weed these problems out. And so like, I, I can't imagine that the structures like are necessarily that different to provide like sort of like large impediments, to like actually being able to like handle these kinds of problems. The other problem too, is that like, I guess like these States, um, to some degree have like their own level of autonomy and like deciding how they run. So like they get to like kind of control things away from the purview of the German government, which like the national government has like a much more dedicated interest in like stopping the rise of the far right um, than maybe like areas like Saxony where the far right like does have a political presence. Other parties have like sort of tried to agree to not work with the AFD and coalition governments when they are elected. And so like they've been doing that and it's like, it is like a useful tactic, but like if the AFD like wins a lot of votes and there like are other parties that are like willing to work with them, it becomes a harder and harder to deal with as like the AFD like gains vote share. But I also like want to underscore too, it's like there is like a tradition of being like very concerned about these things in Germany and the rise of their far right so far has like not been quite as pronounced as in a place like Italy where like the far right just like outright won the like the top office and like it's it's like not quite on the level of like sweden yet so like there are like causes for hope and that like 
it is like a serious consideration in the mind of like the average German in a way that like other countries like might not have the same sort of like collective understanding of. So yeah, like I don't have a clean answer. It's like not good, but like there are like things to look for that are like kind of hopeful. And just to get the listeners on the same page about the AFD, how closely do members of the AFD, the official party line, espouse explicit neo-Nazi beliefs? Or is it more of the dog whistle style that we often see in the American far right? Yeah, it's like mostly dog whistle kind of stuff. Like the original genesis of the party, I think in like 2013, was like more sort of like comparatively like moderate right-wing populist politics and then at a certain point the party was like overtaken by an, its an, like, an internal insurgent wing um which drove it more explicitly far right drove it to like more overtly native and like racist positions and like they are like very clearly like anti-immigrant and they're very clearly like um not that like all populism is like far right but they are like very like far right in like a or very economically populist in a sort of like jingoistic way it's like they're populist for people of like a certain race, but like they've been playing sort of more with the actual terms recently. I think that there was like a specific iteration of like, uh, I forget the term exactly, but it was like something with like Volks, Volkish, or there was like some term that they were using that has like sort of rough roots in Nazism, but they were like trying to say, no, we're just like talking about the German people. Like, even though this term was like used by Nazis, like we're not using it in that way. So they kind of like do like recurringly like play footsie with it. And then they like are constantly dealing with like members of the party, like I said, who like end up actually secretly being Nazis who have like are, are staffers and like very high up uh, positions, kind of like, I don't know, like Tucker Carlson would deny being like a Nazi or anything like that. But then he has had like literal Nazis on his staff that he said fire. And even though he's like fired them, like they were writing for him for years and like they were like able to like help shape and like discourse and like talk to him. So it's like they have that problem. But like very consistently all throughout the AFD. Um, so it's like very veiled and they're like literally, they're not like a neo-Nazi party, but like they recurrently have like neo-Nazis in their ranks. And it seems like a, a never ending problem that they had like are not interested in weeding out necessarily. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I remember hearing a, a bit about the pro-monarchy foiled coup attempt last year. Uh, some of the statements from the members, you know, wanting to bring the country Germany back to say 1938 or something, but saying that they're not Nazis, and then you ask the question, well, what was the country like in 1938? And so it's it's um like you said, it's a sort of constant footsie. But I want to bring back uh, into the conversation some of your other excellent reporting on the American far right, uh, radicalization, sort of uh, homegrown American homegrown conspiracy theories. What does that process of radicalization look like in Germany as compared to the U.S.? Is it similarly? often happening on the internet? Uh, is it happening, you know, in, in private message, digital message boards, channels? What does that process look like in Germany? So like, I admittedly like don't understand it as well. I don't speak German. So like, I, I can't troll around the message boards in the same way. I do know it's like, there are like elements, I guess, that cross over. So like, the far right in the United States has this like very informal, but sort of strong youth wing of like memers and shit posters and trolls. And like people who are like, very, I guess, like who are in Patriot Front or, or whatever, who are like have online presences. I don't know like the specific analog in Germany, but like I do know that like the AFD has like a youth wing and that youth wing is like very extreme. It was just labeled the AFD, I think itself is like not labeled as like a, 
uh, like a threat to national security formally by the state, but they just like as a actually the same day the New Republic piece that I did on this published, uh, they they named the youth wing a threat to the constitution of Germany. And like the, I think the Intel community like specifically called it like a, a, a national security problem. And then like, I know that there's also cross pollination. One of the other people I did the fellowship with published uh, a story or co-wrote a story in Politico Europe about the sort of like dialogue between German Nazis and American Nazis and like groups like the base, which is like one of the more prominent American neo-Nazi organizations does have like sort of discussion and like strategy tactic sharing. They, they, they talk to, I guess, like German and other European groups about those kinds of things. So there is like crossover in that way. And so for there to be crossover, I assume that there has to be like a process of like radicalization on like message boards and internet sites too. And like, this isn't German specific, but like, I think Martin Zellner is like Austrian and like he is this far right guy who has this presence who like literally mimics a lot of American things that he sees. So like the, Everyone like might recall like the the time the Patriot the sort of like escapades where the the Patriot Front, the American neo Nazi group kept like getting into U hauls and then like showing up at different like pride events um, to try to intimidate people. Zellner like had a group of people do the same thing in like I don't know if U haul it was a U haul specifically, but he had them do the same thing and they were dressed up in like Patriot Front esque masks with like the balclavas and the, the caps over it. So like. The, it does look similar as best I can tell as like someone who does not speak European languages besides English. Finally, I might ask you to do something that journalists hate to do, which is to engage in a bit of vulgar prediction, <laughs> but Let's go. you know, where Let's do you, where, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe you love this. Where do you see this heading? I mean, you mentioned in, in your piece that the, the rise of the AFD especially can be seen as something of a warning sign for the rest of Europe. And you also chronicled, how some of the AFD counter protests are losing steam and not really showing up. The counter protests aren't showing up as as strongly in force as they had been in in past in the past maybe you know five or six years or something. But yeah, why do you see this as a warning sign and and where may this be headed? Yeah, it, it was concerning. So to like kind of like like explain that out a little more. Like the last bit of the story is like me at the AFD rally uh, in Berlin in October, which is like a rare thing for the AFD to do. They understand that like. Berlin is interesting because it is like one of the most, you know, like, uh, I guess like progressive in a number of senses cities in the world, but it's like surrounded by the German East, which is like very regressive and like does have like a lot of sort of like um, far right sympathies, but like a bunch of AFD supporters came in. I think it was like, I want to say it's like 10,000 people and they Last time they did this, it was like only a few thousand AFD protesters and they were like massively outnumbered by counter protesters. This time there's only like 2000 counter protesters. Like I was just physically there and there were counter protesters visible, but like their numbers were dwarfed by the AFD protesters who like took over just chunks of the city. It was like surreal. It was like parts of the city that I had been to prior, which were just like normal areas in Berlin became like these weird AFD areas for a day. And like, the cafes that like tourists would normally be in or like random Berliners became like little AFD cafes where they were like watching themselves, like walk down the street. They like closed off traffic. It was like just a pretty big bummer to see, honestly. But uh, so like that was like, you know, that felt bad. Uh, Kochek later, I was talking to him about it. He was like not pleased by like the dynamic that like came out, but like, (sighs) I don't know. I guess there is like reason to be pessimistic. Like, 
the right keeps notching victories. The far right party in Finland did not win the last election, but they like solidified themselves. I think for like, I could be like wrong, but for the second election in a row, it, it might be more, but like at the very least, like two in a row, they uh, solidified themselves, I think is like the second place party and are like widely seen to have like had like a rise in the past few years. There's like other countries are like, this has been like also happening to like varying degrees. There's like not a lot of great signs that it's like s- slowing down. Like Macron in France, like won again, but like, I don't know. I mean, the coverage of that, that I listened to and read, like made it seem like he pulled it out by the skin of his teeth and that people like didn't feel great about him beating his two far right challengers. It just felt like something that they like had to do, but like, we're not excited about. And it like, there, there's like always reason, I guess, to look forward and have hope, but like, it doesn't feel great, but like maybe Germany, I guess, like as a country, like on the whole, like not necessarily like succumbing to like the level of like, I guess, like rise of the far right that the rest of, or like a lot of other parts of Europe is going through is like a sign that maybe like these movements can like be stifled a little bit. I don't know. Like also in my work, I'm like, just like focusing on the United States, like, I've kind of like been saying versions of this for like the past like five or six years and like things are cyclical, but like each year I say like, you know, it doesn't look good, but like maybe there's like a way out. It just gets worse. Like QAnon became bigger. That was like one of the things I like covered initially, which is like different, but like related and it just kept getting bigger every year. And then like QAnon kind of faded, but like part of the reason QAnon faded is because like a lot of it's like more sort of like base elements just became like adopted into just like normal conservatism. Like, I guess issues that have sort of been like accepted, like trans people in the United States were like never fully accepted, but like there was like a lot less just sort of like out in the open, like animus towards, towards them. Um, I guess just like gay rights, which had been a thing that had been like, there's a lot of homophobes in the United States, but like people would sort of just like accept it as like a thing that like was going to exist. Like all of a sudden, like gay rights like came into question. So like, I don't, I don't know. It's not looking good. One thing I, I really enjoyed about your piece and something that you're doing here is is bringing yourself into the story. Um, you you wrote a bit about your experience moving through the AFD rally, uh, how you you felt after a certain point that you wanted to move to the back with the other journalists, and and also a bit about moving through some of clo- at least close to these far right enclaves. Uh, so if you would permit another, I guess, more personal question, could you speak a bit about you know how you felt on this reporting trip and and whether you know you have another reporting trip to Germany in the cards in the future? I guess like part of the reason I did the the trip into Eastern Germany the way that I did was because like it was a way for me to like try to go in and gain a better understanding without like actually going into like a neo-Nazi area. And like it was like a way to go with like another person and I was like going to speak with like asylum seekers who were like, you know, not interested in violence. So like that was like a part of my calculation. I at the, at the Berlin rally, I did like, as I noted in the story, like did kind of feel weird uh, to be like the only person of color around like just tons of, you know, white Germans who have like expressed like these sort of nativist, like anti-immigrant sentiments. Like in Germany, I guess like as an American, you're sort of like kind of no matter what race you are, if you're like understood to be American, you kind of exist outside of like a lot of racial dynamics that they have there. But like until you talk, like they don't know that. And so like you know, someone who saw me from the distance who doesn't know what I am, like, I don't know. Like, I, that was, like, something I was certainly, like, worried about. And then, like, even if they didn't know what I was, like, journalists are not, like, well-received by the AFD either. And, like, as I kind of note in the story that, like, as I go to hang out with the other journalists, one of them tells me that uh, 
the person on stage is encouraging people in the crowd to not attack journalists because I think journalists had just been attacked a little bit earlier in the day. But yeah, I mean, I'd like to go back to Germany if there's like anything specific for me to like look at, if there's like some, some other development. Um, I don't have like immediate plans, but I mean like the, the situation is like changing. The dynamics are changing. Like I would like to do another story at some point that like does integrate like more directly this perspectives of not just like AFD supporters, uh, who are reticent to talk to me and like don't actually want to tell me anything, but like of like party officials to try to like understand, uh, I guess like their politics from their own perspectives, not just like through, I guess like reading like third party material, but like in like actual conversations with one of them, there'd have to be like, I guess like some specific development or like some new, I guess like level of things for me to warrant that. Most of my, like my planned coverage is like just like domestic things and trying to understand what's going on. Like I'm working on a piece right now that tries to like kind of analyze what I was talking about, about like the shift from QAnon being like this separate thing that maybe had like some vague like uh, shadow that was casting on the conservative party in the United States or on conservatism to like sort of becoming this enmeshed thing that like has like become like a sort of conservative talking point without conservatives like either being aware of it or like acknowledging it and like them sort of like taking on this like sort of latent we're just now outright homophobia and outright transphobia and like integrating that in into this like sort of like paranoid style of politics that believes that like there is this like i don't know gay agenda coming to like ruin things for everyone well, I think if that last answers any indication, you certainly have your hands full with the American far right and you're reporting on it. Yeah. So with that, I really want to I want to thank you for coming on and, and talking about your reporting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.